Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we analyse the scientific workforce... What is very scary for us, though, is the projected increase to 7.1 million people with science skills at at least up to A-level, possibly foundation degree level, needed by 2030. And on the current education skills development for the UK, there's no way we will meet that target. And we ask whether eating chocolate is really good for your health. I grew up in Colombia, in a city 1,200 metres high in the Andes. In Colombia, we have large plantations of cacao. And what we found was that there was an association of higher levels of consumption of chocolate with lower risk of developing heart attacks or stroke. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is here with me. And we're joined this week by Jonathan Wood, the Medical and Scientific Press Officer for Oxford University. Now, you're spending a week at the FT as a sort of superior intern to find out from the inside how the media work. And it may be a bit unfair on day two to ask you for your impressions, but I'm going to do it anyway. How are you finding it? Well, it's been tremendous. You've thrown me in at the deep end, writing articles already, interviewing people. And I think it's been wonderful to see the news desk at the FT with its bank of tellies above and everyone running around on the end of phones. It it was quite like how I'd imagined, only with less swearing. How does it seem from Oxford? How do your academic colleagues regard newspapers and the media more generally? Well, some of them do hold their head in their hands when they see some of their headlines. But actually, I I think there is a real recognition now of the importance of talking about science, explaining it in context. And it's really coming through, particularly amongst younger scientists. How much of the good science at Oxford do you think is actually picked up in the general media? Anything appearing in the large medical journals and the large science journals does stand a, a real chance of getting covered but only in certain areas. Uh, Speaking to human health and new treatments, understandably, is of interest. But more convoluted areas of biochemistry, which, I don't know, may be decades off from anything that leads to a new treatment, is much, much harder. Do you think that the academics you work with actually value your role as a sort of interpreter of their science into the media? Oh, you put me on the spot. Many do, others don't see a need for it at all. Academics aren't just one breed of person. They are incredibly varied. And uh, the, the different types of science, the different ways they carry out their career, just shows the variety of people that science attracts. So I'm going to avoid it by saying some are absolutely brilliant, could write the press release themselves without any help from me at all. Others, it's a long process of going backwards and forwards until there's something that we're both happy with. And sometimes we have to make compromises. What are you particularly excited about at the moment in that sort of vast spread of research going on at the university? Oxford's had a lot of stuff where it's 
been at the forefront of finding genes connected to common diseases. And that is now not just a cataloguing process of this gene is associated with diabetes, this other one is associated with heart disease. It's really getting to the point where you can see where this type of study can actually help people in diagnosis, in deciding their medical care. So it's not just a stamp-collecting scientific effort. It really is something that could affect all of us when we go to the GP. Are there still some really difficult topics? I mean, how comfortable is Oxford University and your your team and the colleagues you work with talking about animal experiments and things now? It's been a bit of an internal effort to get everyone at the university realising the need to continue talking about how animal research works and how it influences our understanding of human health and to be a bit more open, essentially. But actually, I think the debate's moved on a bit since the science world has woken up, generally, not just in Oxford, but across the country and across Europe and the States, to talking about animal research. It really has changed public perceptions, and I think it's less newsy now to talk about why we're doing animal research now. And it's just a series of stories about the research based on mice, based on rats, and the new understanding that's coming out of that. How good is an ancient university like Oxford at using the latest multimedia possibilities? We do use Twitter, we we have a Facebook page, we have a, a really good science blog, actually, which I invite everyone to go and see, not just because I write some of the articles, but there has to be a point to it. It's not just blitzing social media with headlines, with lots of content. There has to be a use for it, it has to help the university with its science identity or it has to help research getting across. Now, let's turn to the scientific workforce. And that's your baby, Diana, because the Science Council has commissioned a report out this week on the pattern of science employment in the UK. Perhaps you could start by telling us some of the highlights of the study. The amazing output of this is the 5.8 million people that we've identified working with science in the economy And that's a huge range of different roles. But the work we had to do to be able to find them was quite phenomenal. The way in which labour market information is carried out at the moment really got quite old-fashioned categorisation. And an awful lot of the new types of scientists, people you know, with a, a maths or science background going into being an actuary or where do you classify a physiotherapist or an optometrist, are often lost in the system. So hopefully we have found a way of finding them. So that's been quite an interesting exercise of how we classified everybody. So I'm sure there will be some anxieties about whether people are primary or secondary scientists. But the big difference here is whether is the classification of primary and secondary scientists. What does primary and secondary mean in this context? Primary scientist is somebody who works with science every day, Typically, your sort of white coat wearing researcher, everybody would recognise them as a scientist. The secondary scientists are the group who use science combined with other skills. So they may be engineers, project management, they would be in consultancy, as I mentioned, actuarial work. There's a whole range of areas where they're probably not wearing a white coat and are not visible as scientists. And it's helped us particularly to understand where graduates go. Everybody's been complaining that 50% of science graduates don't go into science jobs. But that's turned out to be just because we didn't classify those jobs as science jobs. They're actually in the jobs they want to be in. So, for example, somebody who reads sports science at university and then goes on to run a leisure centre, which is what they were aiming to do with their sports science degree. Have they left science or are they using science? 
And what's the answer? Well, in this categorisation, currently they're in the unrelated sector. But hopefully in the longer term, we'll start to move them over into secondary science. OK, so how many people are in the primary science category, the one that we all knew were scientists? That's how, 1. How many... 1.2 million, and that's roughly what all of the data said that we would find. So that really hasn't changed hugely. So that's university researchers, people working in labs in the pharmaceutical industry on technical equipment and those sorts of things. So a, a lab technician would be classified as a primary scientist as well as a researcher in a university. So the big surprise is the 4.6 million secondary science workers. Absolutely, and the complexities within that. Obviously, a fair number of those are in the NHS and quite difficult to classify within the NHS. But the NHS is actually not a primary science sector because the majority of the workforce aren't scientists. And so all of those people, the 30% there, would have normally been lost. Um, And obviously the NHS is a huge employer. There's quite a lot in education, of course, the science teachers in the secondary science area, and we may need to reclassify those in due course as primary scientists. The overall number sounds absolutely staggering. Was it a surprise that one in five people in the UK workforce uses science in some way? Not really. When we started to find out where people went and started to talk to graduates and realised that they weren't dissatisfied with where they were going, they actually felt they were still in part to scientists. So both of you probably feel still partly a scientist but wouldn't be called a scientist we then realised it was going to be something like one in five. What is very scary for us, though, is the projected increase to 7.1 million people by 2030. And on the current education skills development for the UK, there's no way we will meet that target. That's interesting. 7.1 million, you think, is the number who will be needed? Needed with science skills at at least up to A-level, possibly foundation degree level or above. So a big expansion of science education, is that the answer? I think we do need a big expansion. I think the numbers suggest something like 60,000 more a year to study science beyond 16. There's been this call for increased science education and people going into science jobs in the past, but there's also been a worry that there weren't actually jobs there for them to go into. But you're saying the way the economy's expanding in different sectors, there will be definitely be this need for scientists for engineers uh, and all these roles they may not be called scientists or engineers they're likely to be called something else and i think that's the key factor most people who say there's a shortage of jobs tend to come from academic and research environment where clearly we do have quite a lot of people chasing a very scarce number of jobs but in areas like food science there are huge shortages the retail industry logistics all of these areas are now very, very dependent on technology. The communications industry is a relatively new one and wasn't previously classified as science. So people are needed who understand the science world. I'll give you a typical one. If you work in a very high-tech business, you're probably selling high-tech equipment to other high-tech people. So you need two highly skilled science and technology people to talk to each other. Neither of those would previously have been classified as scientists. Because we're the Financial Times and we're interested in pay, does your survey show anything about whether these scientists or people in scientific jobs are paid well enough compared to the rest of the economy? There are regional variations and there are variations in sectors. But broadly, if you're a primary scientist working in a core science sector, you will be slightly better paid than anybody else. But it's not a huge swing. Now, let's move on to our contribution from the British Medical Journal. Over to Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ. Thanks, Clive. As the saying goes, you are what you eat. The benefits of the Mediterranean diet have long been known. 
But what if you live somewhere that makes it difficult to get that kind of food? I grew up in, in Colombia, in a city 1,200 meters high in the Andes. In Colombia, we have uh, large plantations of uh, cacao. And we had seen previous studies that had uh, shown that chocolate could have a beneficial effect. And I'm, I was interested to see whether that beneficial effect will, will translate beyond uh, reductions of intermediate factors like blood pressure or insulin sensitivity. And, and will, it, will it translate into heart outcomes, prevention of heart disease uh, events and stroke? Oscar Franco from the University of Cambridge. He and his colleagues have just published a meta-analysis of all the evidence on the health benefits for your heart of eating chocolate. What we, what we found was that there was an association of uh, higher levels of consumption of chocolate with uh, lower levels of events of cardiovascular disease, so lower risk of developing heart attacks or stroke. And the association was approximately a 37% reduction for all cardiovascular events and a 29% reduction for stroke events. A 37% decrease in heart disease sounds compelling, but that meta-analysis is based on observational studies, not the gold standard of randomised controlled trials or cohort studies. This means that the scientists couldn't show that chocolate caused the decrease in risk, just that it was associated with it. Neither could they tell what kind of chocolate is most beneficial, if dark chocolate is better than milk. How chocolate could be working is complicated, as Oscar explained. This is sort of the one million pound question <laughs> I always get. There are, there are many theories. There are many factors. Some people say it's, uh, it's uh, flavonoids, antioxidants, it's substances that are similar to endorphins that make you feel better. Some people say it's just the fact of snacking. Some people might say that it's just a proxy of other lifestyle factors that you are following. I guess the answer, we, we don't have the real answer yet. There's more research that, that is needed. And perhaps the answer is, is all of those uh, that I mentioned. It's just about chocolate. It's, it's all kind of substances that come together in a complex structure that interact with each other and have a beneficial effect. So, however tempting, this research isn't an excuse to gorge yourself. The message now is not for those that are not eating chocolate to start eating chocolate. That, that's not what we're trying to advocate, or at least not yet. And for those that are eating chocolate, not just sit down and, and have as much chocolate as you can, but more in, a, in very small or uh, moderate quantities. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ. I've always been rather reluctant over the years to report on the studies coming out showing that chocolate's good for you because so many of them seem to have been funded and promoted by the chocolate companies. But I'm slightly changing my mind now. I don't know what you think, Jonathan. Well, I'd be delighted to believe this. I don't know how many studies have been done involving how many people here or what else might have been in their diets, I suppose, as well. But uh, any hint like this, uh, I'm, I might just have a crunchy bar on the way home. Oh, not a crunchy. You should just have a 70% pure Colombian chocolate bar, I'm sure. Diana, do you eat chocolate? I do, and I actually prefer the cheap milk chocolate to dark oh, chocolate. Oh, to that. And I'm sure if they find out that chocolate's good for you, so the sort of pharmaceutical industry will kill joy and find the ingredient within it and produce a pill that we I take. I think they're, they're looking for it. They are actually trying to isolate some of these flavonoid antioxidants. And I think they're related to the ones that do you good in red wine, aren't they? 
But it's, it's often the whole foods, though, isn't it, that are important? It's not just one ingredient, is it? With, uh, with things like vitamins and, and these compounds, if you supplement into foods like bread, it doesn't nearly have the same effect if you're getting it through a, a proper, proper diet. I, I think that's a very good point, Jonathan, because some of the clinical trials of antioxidant pills show disappointing results as pills, whereas within vegetables and fruits, they, yeah. they're good for you. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Next week, we'll be at the British Science Festival in Bradford. Please join us again then. Many thanks to Diana Garnham and Jonathan Wood for joining me today. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.